TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore and Ann Baldwin. And here we are again, another edition of The Connection. I am one of the hosts of this program, Ann Baldwin. And I am Lisa DeMattis-Lapori. And you are the CEO of The Connection. We've had so many great topics on this program and so many people interested in the things that we talked about. And we've got another um, interesting conversation for today, which I'm really looking forward to. We've got Charles Barber here. He's the Director uh, Director of Connection Research Institute. Right. right. Did I get that right? That's true. Okay. Among other things. And he's always a great guest on this program. So thanks for being here. We really appreciate it. We do. Hi, Charlie. Hi. I'm going to talk to you about drunken criminologists. Drunken criminologists. Hey, hey my kind of crowd. Right. You know, it's one thing we were talking before the show about what we are going to talk about. And uh, one of the things everyone out there needs to start thinking about, which Charlie's going to bring up, one of the questions that this person that he's going to talk about asked people is, if your life were a movie, what would the title be, right? So don't answer that yet. Everybody think about it. Hold that thought. It. Hold that thought, and that's going to be a fun one. Yeah. Because i got to think about I don't know if I can say it on the radio, but it'll be a fun one. So thanks for being here. So, so what's going on? You've had some interesting things happening. We have. Uh, we've been very busy with our research institute, and Lisa has been wonderfully supportive. And, you know, the connection's pretty unusual nationally to have this sort of activity going on. Um, We've connected to a lot of universities, most major Connecticut universities we've done research projects with, and we've done our own original research. We've gotten federal funding to do research. We've gotten a lot of support from um, from our state partners allowing us to do this, like the Department of Correction and so on and so forth. So I wanted to talk to you today about um, a pilot thing that we're doing that's still in progress, but it has to do with life stories. And to set it up and interrupt me whenever you want, I wrote uh, a book chapter uh, in a book about criminology with a, he's a world famous criminologist. His name is Shad Maruna. And uh, so he did this interesting um, graduate thesis it hap- he's American, but he was in Liverpool, England, and Liverpool was a lot like when the Beatles were there. It was a rough town, and I think there was a 40% unemployment rate when he was doing his research. He wanted to talk to uh, 60 people who had all been hardcore criminals, and to reach these, he actually lived in like um, single-room occupancy hotels and stuff mm. to do the outreach. And so he, he found 30 in each group, approximately 30 in each group. The, the groups meaning they had all had hardcore lives of crime and a lot of it was wrapped up in substance abuse. There had been a heroin epidemic in Liverpool in the 1990s. Sounds familiar, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so the two groups that he interviewed 
half of them had continued lives of crime and, and difficult lives, and half had stopped. So he did a, a, an interview called the Life Story Interview, and it's not a big scientific measure. It's something that everybody can relate to. Uh, I've taught it in my classes at Wesley, in my writing classes. And it's basically 10 questions. And the, quest the first question is, if your life were a book or a movie, who would be the main characters? And what are the plot points? What are the turning points in your life? What would you do differently? What's your biggest regret? What is a wisdom event? What is the thing that has taught you the most? And so a psychologist at Northwestern University in Chicago invented this instrument and has done it with all kinds of people, um, older people, to the public. He's done it for people suffering from depression and anxiety. And he's found, for example, very practical results. The people that got better from depression and anxiety as they told their life story, they thought of the depression and anxiety as something that had come to them and they were getting rid of as opposed to it was with them from birth or from a, it was just part and parcel of their identity. And so the way that they told the story had a lot to do with how they did, right? Mm -hmm. um, so Shad, the criminologist in England, applied this interview to the two groups. And what he found, I guess to his surprise, uh, is that they told their life stories entirely different. And the fundamental difference is the people that had stopped committing crimes used an active language in how they talked about their lives. I did this, whether it was good or bad, I did it as opposed to, and as you work, you know, I've done a lot of interviews with, with prisoners and so on, and there's definitely a tendency like this was done to me or the system. Right. It's everybody me. else's fault. Right, right. The man, mm -hmm. the system. Yeah. And so, um, and so he found that the people that stopped took ownership of their stories. Is okay. to, he also found, so he, in psychological terms, their self-agency, their control of their story, their control of their narrative. He also found totally different measures of um, what, in psychological terms, generativity, which is just a fancy way of saying when something bad happens, one's capacity to take something good out of it over time. Mm. That's where the wisdom event and that kind of stuff. And so what he did is these takes about an hour and a half to do. You transcribe them and then you can score them. Uh, and so you can look at when they talk about something negative, like their mother dying of cancer or, you know, an adverse event in childhood how they then talk about that event later, whether they got something out of it or whether it's just like that was the end of it, it was awful. So he found totally different ways. In fact, when he looked at it linguistically, analyzing just how people told the words, the right. words mm -hmm. it they were five times more likely to put things in active language as opposed to passive language, the people that stopped their criminal careers. This is a very profound and sort of interesting study in terms of you know, how people look at their, their identities. And so can you give an example, the difference between active and passive? Again, like, you know, literally people in prison will sometimes say the man did this to me or the system or the guard or my mother versus what he found was, um, you know, in the Judeo-Christian culture, we kind of want uh, people that have done bad things, we want them to say, I've sinned, you know, kind of various versions of seeing the light, get down on my knees, please forgive me. He didn't find that. In fact, he found no moment of seeing the light. 
what he saw was a process of recovery, not unlike recovery from substance abuse, where there's relapse recovery, ambivalence, relapse again. I think with cocaine, people that recover, there's often seven relapses before. So he found that wavering path, and it wasn't a shame-based, guilt-based path. It was a kind of clear-eyed recognition and ownership of, I did this. Uh, so it's just like, I, I did this, I'm not proud of it, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't feel great about it, but I'm not, you know, ashamed, shamed by it. He also found that really the recovery process was finding and getting in touch with the good self that they had always been rather than, you know, this, this shame-based process of, of uh, coming to terms with their bad acts. Why is that so revealing? I mean, it sounds a lot like the program, right? Mm-hmm. And you talked about the linguistics, linguistics and the active voice. It's kind of like when I write a proposal, we will, we will do this. You know, it's more of an active way of saying this is what you're going to get as opposed to what well, we can. You know, it just kind of takes the doubt out of it. But that's interesting that this group used those words and this group did. The other thing I want to go back to, Charlie, is too, Charles, is um, can I call you Charlie? You call me Charlie. I love Charlie. I, I call love him Chuck, but only I can Chuck. Call him. Only, only Lisa only, can do that. Only I call him that. In the world. In the I like world. Charlie. Charlie. All right, I'm going to call you Charlie. You look like a Charlie. That's a good thing. Not a Charlie Brown, but a Charlie. Good. Um, the other component that you talked about, too, is um, the folks that learn from their weaknesses. If you take that and, and you build upon that, you're probably got a better chance of being more successful but I know so many people that are still in a hole for exactly what you talked about in I that know. it's everybody else's fault exactly. you know I went I went to a restaurant and I had lunch and I didn't have any money and so I said I'll be back and then next thing I know the police are at my door well what are you doing having lunch if you don't have money you, mm-hmm. just simple things like that right mm-hmm. you always want to be the victim mm-hmm. or you always are the victim and there's no reason for that mm-hmm. if you're making bad decisions so anyway i didn't m- mean to interrupt you but so then what does he do with this and what what was the aha moment or was there one well the other uh he's he's a researcher okay. so he leaves it up to the practitioners to take this and that's kind of what we're doing at the connection um so you know he is not a uh, doesn't work directly the just the i think the other insight into that he came up with is what he calls the rituals of redemption. So he called them redemption scripts versus condemnation scripts. The people that recovered told themselves or learned to tell themselves redemption scripts. The people that stayed in the life, it was a condemnation script. And he and so the last chapter is about the rituals of redemption. In other words, in the in the parole process when you get out of prison and then you have a parole officer, the way the system works in reality is when people do well the parole officer, because they have, you know, hundreds of people on their caseload, et cetera, et cetera. They basically, it just trails off. It's basically just, you're great. I don't think we need to meet again. See you later, you know, sign this form. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if you look at the way that we convict people for criminal uh, activity, there's a whole process, formal process of conviction and sentencing and yeah. and entry into prison. So for all for good reason, but we, we do a lot of processing around the going in. Uh, the going in and we do nothing, nothing coming on out. the going out. And so what he heard from uh, the, the people that told the redemption scripts is that they were hungry for um, 
rituals to endorse their interior change. So in other words, you know, all these incredible things that happened on the inside, but no, the system was not there to say, you did it, you know? Now there is a process in Connecticut and elsewhere of if you've been out for a long time and you've reckoned with your past and you've done good works that you can technically be pardoned. Right. Uh, doesn't happen very often, um, but there is that. And so what we've done a little bit at The Connection and other agencies have done in New Haven is to take the message from Shad Maruna's book and do celebrations and public recognition mm -hmm. uh, of, of success. And what is really, really helpful is if it also comes from um, the people that actually sentence them. So, for example, they talked about, uh, there's a group in New Haven that does it at the mayor's office. That's They didn't sentence them, but it's it's part of the state. Right, right, right. And then we've had, um, at halfway houses, we've had people from the Department of Correction come to these celebrations. And it's incredibly meaningful for them, for the people that are part of the apparatus that sentenced them to then say, my God, you did it and hug them and, you know, endorse their change. What's the name of the book? It's called Making Good, How Ex-Offenders Reform Their Lives. So would you recommend that to people out there listening? It sounds like I love those questions and I want to go back over those again. Because whether you're, you know, an ex-offender or not, those are really good questions they to sit questions. down and it's kind of like, you know, going through the steps, right? really sit down and give it some thought and write that stuff down. And, I, and I'm and i sure that it would kind of evolve, you know, over time as well. But you also bring up a great point, Charlie, and that is some people coming out the other end don't know anything but what got them in there in the first place. So therefore, you know, these programs like The Connection has, you know, dealing with helping people, you know, get established after incarceration or find housing or find employment, um, you know, not everybody has those tools. And you really do need tools to succeed in life. Just like you need tools to put anything together or fix something in your house to fix yourself, you do need tools. I'm a firm believer in that. And whether you're in recovery or not, everybody needs tools. Absolutely. And one of the things that we've looked at, you know, people uh, in this life and in the recovery community talk about people, places, and things. Mm -hmm. And so I was involved for the connection in training other halfway houses about that's where this rituals of redemption came in. And in terms of real practical tools and kind of using the technology, often you find that when people go back to their old neighborhoods, they don't intend to pick up, right. but they see Joe, hey man, how you doing? You want something for free? And um, as opposed to pro-social things that they can do in the community. So what I suggested is that as they prepare people for leaving the halfway houses, because they tend to do well in our halfway houses, yeah. it's when they leave that the risk to, the, to them and to the public goes right. way up, is to print out Google Maps of the neighborhood that they're going to, sit with their case manager, put blue marks or red marks for the positive places, uh, you know, whether it's a, a group meetings or the church or the mosque or the YMCA or whatever, the community college, and then red marks where they know Joe's going to be, where they picked up, where they perpetrated crimes, and to have this very practical tool. But to go back to Shad's research and what your very 
apt question. What do you do with this, this brilliant study? And it's a very, for people that don't read scholarship, it's the easiest book of scholarship you're going to read. It's very, um, very accessible. Who don't written. read scholarship. What's that? Who don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> who, do, who don't, who don't read uh, scholarly books. It's as accessible as, as you can, you know, he quotes Bruce Springsteen on page five. Okay, or cool. Then I can probably. So, um, <laughs> so what we've done at the connection it's just in its pilot stages is that michelle our close colleague taught a writing group right. and a storytelling group at our halfway house out of the goodness of her heart she did it on saturday mornings came in on her own time not to interfere with their work schedules and um we had them write their life stories or aspects of their life stories and then our idea was to take the message of shad's work and look at how we might promote an active responsibility for your life choices and promoting the generativity, the ability to see things more, po you know, to take something negative and turn it into positive. And at The Connection, we have access through the state for recidivism data of whether these people are actually going to get back into trouble or not three years out. So our grand scheme, it's in the pilot stages now, is to see if folks that go through these narrat this narrative intervention to kind of get them to look decisively at their life stories and maybe take ownership of their life story might actually do better uh, as they leave. And if you, as they tell their stories, you can really tell the people when you sit in on these interviews, who's the main character in your in your life? The people that say I am, versus the people that say my correction officer or you know my bad uncle, and so you can really see the practical aspects of this as you sit in and on these interviews. You really actually have kind of a sense of who's going to make it and who doesn't. Hmm. Interesting. And you don't get that without stories like this. You can't tell by just sitting down and chatting with somebody if they're going to make it or not. Uh, this is a tool that, I mean, he did an evidence-based right, study, so proven study. That, okay. that showed right. how you tell your story. It seems so story. simple, but yeah, I can see where you could get so much out of it. Right. I mean, it, it's systematized. So he actually did quantitative measures. Mm -hmm. He took the, the, the qualitative interviews and then he scored them. So, I mean, this was like a scientific thing, but the other thing is, um, a lot of things that are common sense or sound common sense have actually not been applied to the criminal justice population because one, it's hard to do research. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get the permissions to do it. Uh, it's hard to access people. You know, this guy lived in a, you know, uh -huh. flea bag hotels to access people. He was 24 years old at the time. Um, and, uh, and also there's a lot of stigma about this population. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of assumptions about what they're like and what they're not like and uh which are tend to be totally incorrect right like the recidivism rates the recidivism rates for some of our populations are so hugely below what the people in the street would think but also what i found in the pilot study is what you really see uh so i i've worked with criminals th you know in prison and knowing the recidivism stats and more of the analytic stuff so when you sit in on these interviews in a halfway house with this guy, you know, happened to be men in our halfway house, what's the, what are the turning points in your life? These are not typical questions that anybody ever has asked them. Right, right. right. So a couple things come out of it. One is they love to talk about it. Like, you know, they're very happy to do this interview because it's not what you've done wrong. It's just tell me about your life. And what I've seen is extraordinary rates of childhood trauma mm -hmm. and um, almost to a person. 
and stories that you know would make your your skin shudder if I told you uh, in terms of things that happened to them when they were three, four, five, six yeah. years old. And one of the questions, as I mentioned, is turning points. And you sit there and you you hear their answers to things that happened in their childhood, and you think, I think, there but for the grace of God go I. Absolutely. If those things had happened to me, yeah. I'd be a worse criminal Definitely. than this guy. Mm-hmm. And you also think, I mean, we're talking about, you know, grandparents teaching kids to drink whiskey at age six or um, a uh, house burning down in the projects and this guy getting blamed for it at age seven. I don't know if he did it. I don't know if he did do it. But that was the moment where he just said to hell with it all and became a juvenile delinquent Mm -hmm. because everybody said he's the one who did it. And so you, th- you hear these stories and you think um, if those things hadn't happened, and it's often very decisive moments, decisive memories, mm-hmm. um, plot points, right. that had that been different, you know, we'd be sitting in different chairs right now. Right. And isn't it interesting, like one little thing, one moment, one action, one, you know, you think about even like meeting your spouse. Like, had I not been there at that time, this wouldn't happen. And I would, I mean, so one it, it, it little is. thing can make such a huge impact on the rest of your life. So true. And I saw this a lot with, when I was in re- active recovery, um, you know, like in rehab, that almost everybody that was there at the time I was there had some sort of a traumatic yeah. something happen to them. Seriously, I think out of like the 30, 35 people, I was the only one that didn't. Mm-hmm. But then as I talked through with professionals, maybe I did. Mm-hmm. I just didn't view it that way. Right. Because it wasn't like I started a fire or I was sexually abused. But there are other things that when you get in front of a professional, they can help, they dig deeper and they can help put it in perspective. And isn't that oftentimes what leaves people just out there wandering around going, well, I don't know if this is bad or not. It's not up to us to decide. Sometimes we need to talk about it. And let somebody who's been trained in this help us figure it out and how to move forward. Mm -hmm. And just the humanity, absolutely. And just the humanity of, um, you know, I think we are very what they call person-centered in our care where we, you know, do individual treatment plans and very attentive to individual needs and, and do individualized assessments. But still, we're part of the system. We have to do risk assessments. We have to do formalized treatment. So what was really revelatory for me in doing these interviews is it's everybody has a story. These guys have each one of them is like a Dickens novel. And you see them as we should always see them, but it really brings out the humanity. So just one little story in the middle of an interview kind of a big tough dude, you know, I might walk across the street if I saw him if it was 11 o'clock at night. We're talking about the main characters in his life. He says his grandmother, um, and she died when she was in her fifties. That was a he was whatever seventeen years old. That was another actually moment where he then went on a, a, a tear. So in the middle of the interview, he unbuttons his shirt and he reveals a tattoo of his grandmother's date of birth and date of death, like this big. And, you know, I, I don't think he had probably ever shown, you know, talked about that or shown that or, you know, um, it, so you just uh, you see that you walk away saying I would be up to I wouldn't be living the life that I would be living now if I'd had those adverse yeah. experiences. Yet at the same time. But the, everybody's lost a grandmother. Right. And well, it, not everybody, but 
Right. Yeah, but this, this, why sir, is that this, such a dramatic thing? Well, th it was his closest relationship in life. Okay. Um, but at the same time, what Chad's research shows is you have to take responsibility for those things that happened. And it's the people that face them head on that are the ones that recover from it. Well, and it these puts all those questions of fairness and chance and fate aside. The, the, the stories that they told the people that recovered is they, whatever the fates are, they said, I did this. Mm -hmm. And now I have to move forward from that. Right. And again, I'll we'll go back to this, you know, why professional help is, is so important. And we want people to know that the connection does have a helpline. And if people want that information or want more information, someone will get back to them. The number is 855-435-7955. That's 855-435-7955. Or you can go to the Connection Inc., all one word, org. And I don't mean to say, you know, so what? Your grandmother died. I'm not trying to be mm -hmm. callous about that. Mm -hmm. But one of the other things that I see sometimes is, you know, people sit in their own stuff for too long. You know, they have their own pity party. Mm -hmm. I mean, bad things happen to a lot of us. Bad things happen to everyone. Mm -hmm. It's how you deal with it and what you do with that that really makes a difference. But you're right. And the other thing is, you know, we've, again, I don't know the story of this uh, specific gentleman, but thinking about stories I've heard over and over again, just when I thought I heard the last one, you know, my get my guess is, and again, I don't know, is that if this was uh, someone in his life who really loved him and was there for him and everyone else mm -hmm. left him, hurt him, sexually abused him, what you know, then that is a big life. It's not just, okay, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, I do. It depends so on that relationship. It depends on yeah. the relationship. And it may have been the only person in his entire existence that ever really cared about him or was his caretaker and everyone else, what you know. And so you hear these stories, and I think you're right, Charlie, because... I always wonder too, how is this, you know, when I first started a connection with these women, I thought if I heard one more, you know, horrific story, how is this person alive? Oh, my father used to, you know, threaten, you know, if I didn't, if he said that if I didn't, uh, you know, let him have sex with me, that he was going to throw me in the dryer. Um, I mean, there are stories that are just absolutely horrendous that we, that we heard from a small age, mm -hmm. every socioeconomic class, this is not again. And, you know, we can say that, but if you don't have the support system, if everyone's abandoned you, if you don't have self-esteem, you know, how do you, what is your, and you have a mental health issue, right? So a lot of folks that use, there's some mental health going on. You don't have anyone there. There's not, you know, you're not going to say, oh, I'm going to, you know, what, what is your, what are your options out there? If you're complete, feeling completely destitute, alone, no one's there, everyone has hurt you, et cetera. Doesn't, I mean, what do you do if you don't have someone there to go to a support system, especially yeah. if you're a child? Right. I mean, how does that work? Right. You're right. And you know, a lot of these people, I know my dad worked in corrections for years, you know, they would see him come back because that's the only place they had to go. Mm -hmm. That's the only place that they felt, felt safe or that they had somebody else to talk to or that they got, you know, three meals or whatever it was a day to them. That was, that was the best is that was as good as it was going to get, mm -hmm. you know, but, um, things can get better if you get the proper resources. And I got to say again, personally, I think with all the look and, you know, p things are getting studied more now. Uh, the effectiveness of programs is really being looked at. I don't know from the outside looking in that that was always the case. And I think that's where we need to go. There's got to be proven results and there's, you know, you just can't throw spaghetti at the wall and hope it sticks. So you guys are doing it and doing it right because you've got proven results and you're doing the statistics and, you know, having to be accountable to the people that are either giving you the money or providing you the services. That's huge.
Yeah, and there's, um, I mean, you had a great question about, you know, why didn't anybody do this before? This is, you know, pretty obvious stuff. In, in sort of the continuum of research, uh, med research in mental health and substance abuse was kind of 20 years behind medical research, at least 20 years. Mm. It's really caught up about 15 years ago psychiatric research was as good as any research in any other part of medicine that had never been true before. Um, and you know all about the substance abuse research, which was just didn't even exist right. in, in the seventies. So criminological research has now is the next wave. Okay. And so some of these things seem like they're kind of obvious and intuitive, but nobody ever actually sat down to do the, the damn interviews. Right. And, um, and so now that actually is happening. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. Again, Charles Barber, who is the director of Connection Re the Connection Research Institute. This has been really, really interesting. It's kind of cool. And we still got to think about what would the title of your movie be and who would play the main character. Maybe we can answer that next time we get together. That would be interesting. Think about that, listeners. I know it's early, but think about it. Who would play you? <laughs> and thanks for listening to this edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. audio platform with something for everyone news in order to secure convictions in a court of law it is essential that we conclusively sports that clock at four Donchich. the step back three you bet. music you set my world on fire yes, and even podcasts whatever you love hear it right here on tune in go to tune in.com or download the tune in app to start listening